just one text I would like to read for you this morning before we once again seek the face of God. The passage is Micah, and it's chapter 6, and it's verse 8. Micah is addressing the people as to how they can approach him and what God requires of them. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love loving kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Well, let's ask for God's help again as we come to his word. Let's pray. Gracious Father, please hear our prayer that we have corporately just offered to you and which we now again ask that you would be pleased to grant your quickening grace, that the truth of your word would be received and it would have saving power and it would have sanctifying power. Come, O gracious God, by the power of your spirit and make your word living and active for the glory of King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. We take up again this morning the topic of racism, and in particular under the heading uh, that I have given to this part of the series, a Christian understanding of and pastoral response to Racism. Now, there's a sense in which this series actually began uh, back in the summer when I uh, opened up Psalm 94 and addressed the whole matter of where can we go for justice. And then that was followed by a couple of foundational messages which we looked at what is man and sought to address from the scriptures what the scriptures tell us about mankind. And there's a sense in which those two messages uh, answer much of the matters Uh, related to racism and its uh, proponents or its uh, various voices in our culture today. And yet we've come back to this again to try to look at this more specifically. Now let me just say, there are uh, any number of matters which I am not planning to address in any part of this particular series in the preaching of the Word of God. So for those of you who who want to take a little bit of a break, you can just stop listening for just a minute or two. I'm not going to talk about cultural Marxism in this series. I'm not going to talk about critical theory in this series. I'm not going to go into all of the political uh, aspects of this, addressing various ways that our culture uh, is, is trying to address and understand this matter of Marxism. That's not, as far as I understand, what I want to do and need to do from this pulpit, what I want to address in this setting. Should we have a Sunday school class at some point in time, or if you want to sit down and make an appointment where we can socially distance over coffee and uh, talk through some of those things, I will gladly address some, some of those things and seek to answer some of those questions. But that's not my point. There are, there are numerous videos I can point you to, places you can go to find that kind of information on the internet. 
My goal is as a pastor to bring the Word of God to bear in such a way that you as a people of God can stand in a context when these topics are being addressed and say, well, that's all fine and good. I may not understand all that you're talking about there, and I don't know all the political implications of what you're just now saying, but this much is true. Thus saith the Lord. And that's my goal. While I did start the series by giving an extended definition of what racism is so that you could understand where we're coming from and how I'm addressing it and what I see as, as the issues, I have sought to keep myself rooted to the scriptures. And so I'm not going to go into sociological studies. I'm not going to go over a whole bunch of statistics. I'm not going to go through sound bites, look at every instance of racism uh, or so-called racism in our, in our culture and say, this was this and this was that. That's not my purpose. My purpose is to take the Word of God and address this sin called racism. Now, when we come to our Bibles, the word racism is not found there. That sin is not identified in that way. So the, one of the first things we did is we identified what are the biblical categories, We're talking about racism, and that is uh, this idea that, um, and the problematic definition, racism is an explicit or implicit belief or practice that qualitatively distinguishes or values one race over other races. And I'm not going to go into what all those words mean, but that's the definition that I'm using, uh, taken from uh, PCA, uh, Presbyterian Church of America document back in 2016. We looked at that, that problematic form of racism, and I said, what's the category? Well, the category in the Bible is prejudice. The category in the Bible is what's called partiality. And so we looked at James chapter 2 and saw what James had to say about uh, being partial and sought to press home the reality that we need to look at our hearts and say, do I see this in my heart? Am I being partial toward any particular person in a sinful Way Looking at external uh, appearances and saying, I'm categorizing and punching them into a particular part, a particular box, and dealing with them uh, in that way. Treating them badly, or in some senses even treating them better, just because of the way they look. And we looked at at that matter. Then the second thing was a biblical response, in which we first of all looked at the general principle found in John 7 and verse 24, Stop judging by appearance and righteously judge, or judge righteous judgment. And I sought to open up what that meant, what we were to stop doing and what we were to begin doing. We are to stop judging by appearance. That is, we are to stop looking at things just on the surface and making judgments based on surface external realities. This person has this wide a nose, and therefore they are in this category. This person has these kinds of beady eyes. For those of you who are old enough to remember what beady eyes were when that term was used a lot, therefore they must be a criminal. And so you have these kinds of external realities. Another way to judge unrighteously, and according to John 7, is to take the prevailing view that's being promoted about somebody or something and take it uncritically. Take it without looking at God's word. Take it without looking at the truth of what God has said and then to embrace that and run with it. That's what the people were doing. They were taking the Pharisees' views of Jesus and ignoring Jesus' own words and Jesus' own works. And that also is judging unrighteous judgment or judging by appearances. 
And so we need to be careful not to judge based merely on the surface or based on the prevailing cultural voices. We need to come back to the Word of God. And so this is where the warning comes in, and I would say beware of being sucked into cultural Marxism. Beware of embracing the perspectives of critical theory, whether it's critical race theory or critical gender theory or critical some other kind of theory. The fact of the matter is when you start putting people in two categories, oppressed and oppressors, that's not a biblical category of how to divide men. And so we need to think according to God's word. What does God say about who men are and who we are? And so we looked at what righteous judgment looks like. So now this morning, having looked at the general principle of stop judging by appearance under this overarching heading of a biblical response considered, we come to some new material this morning. So we've looked at the general principle, stop judging by appearance, judge righteous judgment, to now a governing principle, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I wrestled with whether to preach this because it's so basic and so simple. But from that verse that I started with, Micah 6 and verse 8, you see there are, there are three things that God requires of His people that He wanted His people to understand. He wanted them to do justice. He wants them to judge righteously. He wants them to act righteously. Righteous as defined by God's law, by God's truth. But He also wants them to love Loving kindness. He wants them to love mercy, both in seeing it and receiving it and in giving it. And then he wants them to walk humbly before their God. And you see, I think it's these last two things which are very often missing in our cultural context. A lot of people crying for justice. Few people out there, or fewer people out there, showing that they love loving kindness. Fewer people still walking humbly before their God. Well, I want to look at this aspect of loving loving kindness then under this general principle, love your neighbor as yourself. Now you recall we saw that in, in James chapter 2, but there what I sought to do from that passage was to show how that phrase, that quote there used from the Old Testament is used to draw in a cultural element into, into what was happening there in that partial behavior, that, that prejudice that was being shown in, and addressed in James. This morning, I'd like for us to look at that phrase and look at it in directly to understand what it means for us and how we ought to live. So let's turn to the foundational passage, uh, love your neighbor as yourself in Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19. This is the place that the New Testament is quoting in the middle of the holiness code. This was the code given to God's people as to how to live holy lives before Him. And we have in Leviticus chapter 19, I'll begin reading at verse 9, I want to read down to verse 18. Now the last two verses, verses 17 and 18, are something of a conclusion, I believe, and something of getting to the heart of the matter, if you will, and what comes before that are the practical uh, expressions, and then what's going to give rise to those expressions. Beginning at verse 9 then, Leviticus chapter 19. 
Now, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field. Neither shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am Yahweh, your God. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God. I am Yahweh. You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall revere or fear your God. I am Yahweh. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall go not go about, excuse me, as a slanderer among your people, and you shall and you are not to act against or stand by, if you say act against the life of your neighbor, I am Yahweh. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor hear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. So the principles there in the end, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The opposite of that is what is stated in the previous verse. That is hating your neighbor, hating your fellow countrymen from your heart. He says, you should deal with your fellow countrymen. You can even, if you see them, rebuke them for their sins. You can reprove them for things they're doing wrong. But you shall not incur sin against, because of him. In other words, maybe it's, it's a number of ways this could be understood. Either you, you deal with it so that you won't be agitated by your brother's sin. Or you, you, he's urging us to do it so that we won't. Uh, sin in doing it or do it in such a way that you don't sin against him as you do it. Don't do it with hatred in your heart. When you rebuke your brother, he says, do it with love in your heart. That is to win him over, to bring him around. But here's the point. Don't go with anger. Don't go with hatred yourselves to love your neighbor. Notice it says that that means that you won't exercise vengeance or bear a grudge. If you love your neighbor. Working backwards then through the passage, notice some of the things then that this love, how this love is going to manifest itself. This love is going to manifest itself in protecting their name and protecting their life, not standing by as something happens and not dealing with it. Or slandering them, not slandering them and and ruining their good name. In verse 14, or excuse me, verse 15, it's, it's about not uh, dealing with them unfairly, but being fair and just in your, in your treatments of them and making judgments of them. Then he talks about not taking advantage of someone because of their disability or because of their weakness. He also talks then about this love showing itself in having honest financial interactions and honoring all your words, whether contractual or whether it's just speaking to your neighbor, you're going to deal with them fairly on a financial level. You're not going to extort things from them, rob things from them, or lie to them. 
I'm certainly not going to do it with, a, with an oath that makes you seem religious even while you're doing it. And then you're to honor their private property by not stealing. And then it begins that section of gleaning the fields. And we say, well, I don't have a field, so I guess that doesn't apply to me. Well, why were they to leave something in the field? It was because they were to have a concern for the needs of those who are needy. And this is how you show loving kindness. By meeting and helping those with physical needs. That's what it looks like when when we say, love your neighbor as yourself, protect their good name, treat them fairly, don't take advantage of their weaknesses, have honest financial dealings with them, honor your words and their their words, promote their, their property, protect their property, and provide for physical necessities as you have ability to do so. So there's the foundational passage. It gives us some helpful teaching as to what it means then to love your neighbor as yourself. How that would change things if that was the way we looked at everybody when we were interacting with them. But then secondly, Jesus' teaching from this passage. So there's the foundational passage, Leviticus 19. Let's look at a couple passages in the Gospels where Jesus takes this passage and teaches from it. And he teaches something about how this should be applied to us. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 43. Starting from the passage that we just read from Leviticus, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And this was the false teaching of the Pharisees uh, that was going around. So you have this external reality of loving, but then you can also hate your enemies. It's okay to do that, or at least in, in their culture that was okay. Jesus says, But I say to you, No, no, you see this, love your, your neighbors? It goes further than that. It says, Love. Your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, or you could put the word in there who oppress you, in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Here's the motivation that you would show yourself to be true sons of God. For he, and this is how God acts, and this is the parallel then how we're to act, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the, underri- other, and, the, excuse me, and the unrighteous. This is an expression, as it were, of what the psalmist says when he says that God's tender mercies are over all his works. He causes the rain to come down on them. He causes the sun to shine upon them. This is what it means as our heavenly Father shows love or mercy Toward his human creatures. He goes on, he says, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? You're just as bad as the people that are considered the lowest in society if you just love those who love you. Or, he says, he goes on, he says, And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And there, I believe he's using the term in a context of Jews to help them to see, you're not no different than the unbelievers. You're supposed to be different. You're supposed to be my sons. You're supposed to look like me. You're supposed to reflect my character. And I've told you from the past, this is how you do that. Love your neighbor as yourself. The same way you would take care of yourself. The same way that you care for yourself. He's not telling us to love ourselves. He's saying, I know you love yourself. 
And all you have to do is cut your finger this afternoon when you're helping your wife with the salad and you'll see how quickly you take care of yourself. That's what we do. We love ourselves. We care for ourselves. We protect ourselves. And he's saying that's to be manifested in the way you love your enemies, the way you love those who persecute you. This is how you show love for your neighbor, by caring for them. More than self-serving individuals like tax collectors were perceived to be. And then he ends in verse 48 by stamping it once again by saying, Therefore, if you do this, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, in Luke, the similar passage found there, Luke 6, verses 35 and 36, we read this, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your heavenly Father is merciful. He says this is what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. It's to be concerned for them. Do good to them. Even lend to them without expecting anything in return. I remember years and years ago, somebody told me a very helpful thing. They said, he who lends gives. Right? And very often that's what it is. And that was used in a, in a different, in a particular context. I won't say what the context is, but he who loves, he who lends, gives. And very often this is kind of what he's saying here. Lend and don't expect anything in return. Don't expect them to lend back. Don't expect them to be kind back. And even if you have to lose what you lent, then let it go. There's a sense in which this is what Jesus is saying mercy looks like. Just like our Heavenly Father gives mercy to the ungodly. Does he... In one sense, expect anything back from an ungodly person? No. Does he require of it? Yes. They're to give thanks. They're to obey. They're to repent. But oftentimes, and very often, he gets nothing in return. Then our, Jesus, then our Lord, the Lord Jesus, in the teaching on this passage, not only in Matthew 5 and Luke chapter 6, of course, we know in Luke chapter 10, he uses this principle again, only there he gives us that wonderful illustration of the Samaritan, as he's come to be known as the Good Samaritan. And here's a perfect example of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. The Good Samaritan comes across somebody, probably a Jewish man, sees him all beat up, and he takes care of him. He does what he can to help his physical needs, his needs right then and there, and then he takes care of him, he takes him to an inn, he provides money to, to, so he's cared for, he shows compassion. He sees somebody in need and he seeks to meet that need. This is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. So we saw in the foundational passage some of the ways that that manifests itself. We see Jesus teaching very similar things as he brings this to, to his disciples in the Gospels. Now, if you were in some ways to think that, okay, well, that's a nice little paradigm, love your neighbor as yourself, and I can kind of put that on a plaque and maybe put it in my kitchen, or put it on my desktop and, you know, on my computer so I can see it once in a while. You say, but you know what, I, there, there are other more important things that I have in life, right? We have the Ten Commandments. Those are biggies. The problem is that Jesus and the New Testament writers put this command, love your neighbor as yourself, on a par with the Ten Commandments. In Matthew 19, 19, Jesus says, Honor your father and your mother, the fifth commandment, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Paul in summarizing the law in Romans chapter 13. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law for this. And then he's going to give us some of the law. What law is he talking about? Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. And there are other passages like that that summarize the law with these two great commandments, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Upon this hang all the law and the prophets. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets, the New American Standard says. So this is no small deal when we get this commandment in the middle of a whole bunch of stuff in the the book of Leviticus, a book which I'm afraid a lot of us just like to breeze over. And yet here is this command that becomes so central that Jesus picks it up, the apostles pick it up, bring it up and say, here is a way to summarize much of the commandments and how to fulfill the commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is no small deal. And that's why I decided, well, I know it's things you've probably all heard before, but I said I'm going to take the time to go over it because it's so important. It's given such prominence. Pastor Martin, uh, quoting from somebody else and adding a little bit to him of his own, puts these together, this issue of love and this summary statement and the Ten Commandments, and he said it this way, quoting from a Puritan or someone else, says, Love is, or excuse me, law is love's eyes. Without it, love is blind. When you say, I love you, well, how do I know you love me? Well, I know how you tell me you love me. Children, I know how you can say, don't just give mommy and daddy a card on Mother's Day and Father's Day and on birthdays and say, love you and little hearts. Don't just send them emoji texts saying, I love you. Here's how you tell them you love them. Honor your father and your mother. That's the command. That's how you show it. We show that we love our fellow man. Well, how? By not stealing from them, protecting their private property. By not lying to them, but telling them the truth and dealing with them faithfully. By keeping ourselves pure in word and thought and deed. This is how we manifest, by not murdering in word or thought or deed. This is how we keep, this is how we manifest love. Law is love's eyes. Without it, love is blind. But then Pastor Martin goes on to add this. Love is law's heart. Without it, law is dead. You just keep all the commands, but you have not love. Just an external moral practice, but there's no love behind it for doing good to your neighbor and desiring their best. It's just dead moralism. So let's put this all together. I'm talking about this in a context which we call racism. 
What's it look like? It means showing compassion and doing good to those who are in need. As we read in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. Romans 12 and verse 20, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. We've seen that in some of the communities where there's been murders in churches and churches have responded with love, showing kindness, praying for the individual. We need more of the Good Samaritan approach to these kinds of issues in our, in our communities and in relating to one another, being kind toward one another. In the, the, the greeting that he talks about, if you greet just your brothers, how about just showing common courtesy? Is there anybody you have problems showing common courtesy to? Just because of the way they look, or the way they dress, or the place they come from, or the language they speak, is there somebody you say, or is there somebody because of a sinful lifestyle that you know they have or have had? I don't want to touch them. Well, I'm not saying that there aren't places where we ought to be wise and careful. And I'm not saying every young lady here should now go out to the streets of New York and find every uh, street person and go up to them and sit down with them and have a you know, nice little conversation. I'm not saying that. Right? There's wisdom here too. But I'm, what I'm saying is this. We need to be careful that we don't have some of this in our hearts. It is so easy for this to creep up in our hearts. Just because of somebody's skin color, they're a racist. Or just because of somebody's skin color, they're an addict. Those thoughts should not be dominant in our hearts. Should not be there in our hearts. We should be sincere and abhor evil and cling to what is good, as it says in Romans 12 and verse 9. This is the way love shows itself. Not with hypocrisy, but we abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. We bless those who persecute us and bless and curse not. We don't hold grudges. We don't bring revenge, but we leave room for the vengeance of God. We don't rejoice in unrighteousness, but we rejoice with the truth. Even if that truth disagrees with my narrative. We manifest patience. Brethren, I think if there's anything I think we need in our culture today... It's patience to sit and listen to people. People are hurting. Whether we believe it's legitimate or not, they're hurting. And we need to sit and listen to them and find out exactly what it is that's making them feel that way. The loving thing is to hear them out that we can't do them good if we can't hear them. And just because somebody didn't grow up in your background, maybe it's helpful for you to take some time to help them understand what some say they can't understand because of who they are. Maybe just take some time to help them understand who you are so they can love you and you can love them. 
You see, this goes on both sides and every side of, these, of this issue of racism. It's not just one side that needs to learn to manifest loving kindness and love their neighbor as themselves. It's all sides. There, there would be some people still alive today had police officers had that disposition. There would be some police officers alive today had some people had that disposition. But then, as we look at this general principle, we've seen the foundational teaching, Jesus teaching on the passage. We've looked a little bit at what it looks like. But, you know, there's, there's one other thing I just want to highlight, and that's this whole matter of the perfect example of this disposition of loving your neighbor as yourself. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, it tells us that he went about doing good. And we read about it even in our, in our scripture reading this morning about him healing many. He went out and healed them, and then, and then he had compassion on them because it was these multitude that were, that were hungry, and, and so he was concerned that they be fed. What? I thought he came into the world sinners to save. I thought he came into the world to lay down his life a ransom for many. Yes, but in the, in the process while he was here, he went about doing good as a platform for drawing people to hear his words and as the creator just taking care of his creatures. And he fed them. But, and there's just about any page of the, of the Gospels you can start turning and find these kinds of expressions of Jesus being kind. He was full of compassion for those in need, both spiritual and physical needs. But I found it especially helpful to go through and find how many times Jesus was kind to those who were not Jews. So remember in John chapter 4, he's there at the well, a Samaritan woman comes up and he engages her in conversation. And her response was, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And so he deals with her graciously and brings the gospel to her. And then we read at the end of that chapter, chapter 4, verse 40, we read, So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, came to him, they were asking him to stay with them. <sighs> Wait a minute, now he's a Jew. He's already talked to a Jewish woman. She's gone back, brought out a whole host of others. And it says he stayed there two days. Jesus, ministering among the Samaritans. Remember, he healed ten lepers. We know that one of them was a Samaritan. The Samaritan comes back and he doesn't say, oh, I didn't mean you. He commended him for being the only one who knew where to give thanks. And then a centurion's servant, a Roman's servant. Now, the servant may have been a Jewish man, but he's helping out a Roman. And he heals his servant, who very well could have been just another Roman or some other nationality. But the one that I thought was most telling is found in Mark chapter 7. Turn with me to Mark chapter 7 for a minute as we see something of our Lord's manifestation of, of loving kindness. Mark chapter 7. 
Mark chapter 7, beginning at verse 24. Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know. Yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race. A Gentile. Matthew says she was a Canaanite. Ancient enemy of the people of Israel. A culture very much despised by the people of Israel, and in many respects, rightly so, for it was an immoral, ungodly world. Culture, excuse me. But this Gentile, this Syrophoenician woman comes, she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter, and he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Jesus not in any way being rude, but challenging, helping her to come to grips with and to bring out her faith, as it were. But she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, I have have no claim upon you, she says. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. What an amazing display of cross-cultural kindness. The Holy Son of God. Holy, undefiled, separate from sinners. Heard this woman ministered to this woman at a point of her physical need with regard to her daughter. There's our example. You see, Jesus came into this world and and there was no sin that he would stomach or allow to go on untouched. He, he, he He didn't stand for sin. He wouldn't allow that. And that included the racist, ethnocentric view of many of the Jews, who, because of God's goodness to them in the past, thought they were something special. And so they elevated themselves in their own minds, many of them, to having a special status. And Jesus said, no, I didn't didn't come here to pander to your ethnocentrism. And it was very interesting, if you look at Luke chapter 4, when he's reading in the synagogue in his hometown, and I'm indebted to uh, John Piper for pointing this out in his book, Bloodlines. But in Luke chapter 4, we read that he read the scriptures The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, verse 18, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recover the sight of the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began saying to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now notice their response. They don't pick up stones to 
to stone him. Notice what they do. It says, And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? They're going, Wow, this is pretty impressive what this man's saying. But then notice what Jesus says after that. He addresses their posture. He says to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard, from, heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he, that is Jesus, said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow, that is, to a Gentile land. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, but none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. Now what's their response? Now that they've been compared to apostate Israel and God sending his prophets to the Gentiles and Gentiles receiving blessing from God's hand. Now what's their response? And all in the synagogue were filled with rage and they heard these things and they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of a hill on which the city had been built in order to throw him down off the cliff. Now you've gone too far, Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't come to just minister to the elite of Israel. Jesus, in his coming into this world, came as a savior for all sinners of all nationalities, Canaanites, even rebellious Jews for that matter. They should have humbled themselves and say, oh, blessed be God that his, his grace is so, so amazing he can even go to the Gentiles, even heal one of Israel's enemies. What an amazing God we have. That's not their response. So brethren, I want us to see this picture because I want us to really evaluate ourselves. I want us to take a step and I want us to look into the mirror of God's word and look as it were into the face of the Lord Jesus Christ ourselves and say, is that my disposition toward those around me? Toward those who are racist toward me? toward those whom I view in a racist, prejudiced, sinful manner. Well, see, I'm just saying, if that's the case, then I'm not doing this, am I? I'm not actually dealing with this as I should. This should be the expression, what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the opposite of racism. This is the, the cure, if you will, of racism. Being perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is, being merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. Manifesting it in real, tangible kindness to others. Manifesting it in your words being true to all people, not just the ones you like. 
in your dealings with all, being fair and just, not just for your friends. And you see, prejudice can also fall along religious lines. Oh, well, they're not 1689 people. Well, they may be a Baptist reforming kind of church, but... Okay, and I'm all for truth and evaluating things according to truth. I'm I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. But at the same time, we need to be careful that it doesn't become a carnal prejudice in our hearts where we start looking down on others because they're different than us. May God be pleased to help us to fulfill the royal law and love our neighbors as ourselves. That's what will show that we're truly sons of the king. And may God help us. He has told us what is good. What does the Lord require of us? To do justice, yes. And to love chesed. Extreme mercy toward those around me. And then to walk humbly before our God. You see, this is the part that's missing is the fear of God. Are we living under the eye of God? God is looking down and saying, I gave you my Ten Commandments, but I also gave you this one. Love your neighbor as yourself. Is that you? Now, some of you, you have, you have no desire to look at the Lord Jesus Christ, to live like the Lord Jesus Christ. You have no desire to do any of these things. But you see, this is, that's because this is only truly produced by the gospel. I'm not telling you this is a nice moral way to make society better. I'm telling you this is what true people of God do when the gospel gets a hold of their lives. And I want you to know that you sit here this morning and you're outside of Christ. You don't know what it is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not following after him. He's not your savior. You have no desire to really know him or live, live for him. I'm telling you, you're my neighbor this morning and I love you. And those who are sitting around you are your neighbors. They love you. Now, some of us have different ways of speaking to you, sometimes a little more direct than others. But recognize our deepest longing for you is not that you have a nice moral life, but that you would be a son of the God of heaven. And so we plead with you out of love for you. See your sin. Don't embrace your your sin. It'll kill you. It'll drag you deeper than the six-foot grave. It'll take you to judgment before a holy God and send you off into eternity of judgment. And we're here to tell you there's a Savior for sinners like you, a Savior who shows great compassion, so much so he came into this world and laid aside his glorious position sitting in heaven and he came down and took to himself flesh and he lived among sinful men and he allowed himself to be mistreated and even allowed himself to die so that he could die in the place of sinners like you and me so that you could be set free now that's my next point but I haven't got time this morning to go to it but I urge every one of you to look to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to see ourselves accurately and fairly. And please give to us a greater love for mankind in general, for even our enemies in particular, our oppressors, our persecutors, and those who are different than us. Help us to be very different than the world. And may it be clear that we are your disciples, not just because of our love for one another, but our love for men. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.